Welcome to the green scene. Uh, so yeah, uh, my first thing that I found uh, was from Science Daily. Uh, what was the Good study? The study Daily. was out of yeah, was out of Postum Institute for Climate Impact Research, and this was posted a few days ago. And the title was "Accelerated Renewable." Renewables-based electrification paves the way for a post-fossil future. So I will preface that. Yeah, what does that mean? Little, <laughs> what does that mean, Dan? <laughs> I don't understand. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, basically, the summary of the whole thing was we should... They, they talk about it as a study, but it really was more, I think, of an opinion piece. At least that's how it read. So uh, it's going to be a lot of what this one researcher guy was saying was basically the article. Uh, but yeah, basically the premise of it was moving to more fr- moving away from fossil fuels and moving more to uh, electrified or using electricity for excuse me uh, for uh, powering like for our energy needs and doing that through renewable um, systems. So that's your solar, your wind, your geothermal, all that stuff. So, yeah, I'll just get into it and then we can kind of talk about it. I thought this would be more of just kind of us talking about renewable energies and kind of our thoughts on <laughs> those guys' opinions. So, uh, anyways, yeah. So, the author of the study, uh, what's his, uh, Gunnar, Gunnar Luther, 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 um, like stated he's... that it's somewhere in the UK, I think. <laughs> he's probably German or Scandinavian or something. I don't know. Um, but yeah, what does it say? Today, he said, today, 80% of, our, of all energy demands for industry mobi- mobility or heating buildings is met by burning mostly fossil fuels directly and only 20% by electricity. Our research finds that relation can be pretty much reversed by 2050, making the easy to decarbonize electricity the mainstay of global energy supply. Uh, he goes on to say that while fossil fuel was the cheap and abundant option for energy generation, renewable electricity generation has become cheaper and more efficient and combining renewable electricity generation with things like carbon pricing he carbon carbon pricing he sees green electricity as he coins it being the cheapest and widely available to most of the world's energy demands again by 2050 so i mean just based off that statement like (laughs) what do you guys think well it sounds like um just like you see in electronics and everything to start with it's more cost prohibitive and expensive uh, to do and maybe not as accessible to the bulk of the buying market, right? The regular average Joe person. But as time goes by, better methods are, are, are discovered. The methods become more efficient. Government, more government support is there. And then it fans out and becomes more accessible to the masses, right? Which makes it more uh, conducive for people to get into, which then generates the whole perpetual, okay, now more people are using it. You got higher percentages. So it sounds like he's seeing over, over time that, um, there, it'll just keep shifting to, uh, um, it being, it making more sense for more people to switch to, um, electricity, uh, versus the traditional fossil fuels and, uh, You'll, you'll see that percentage shift because what he was saying, something like even now that we're aware that it should be better in most cases, um, it's only 20% of what was it worldwide use or whatever of electricity. Yeah, and 80% of energy demands is mostly still, on burning yeah. fossil fuels and then 20% is electricity yeah. driven. And the other thing to put it in perspective too is generally 
um, the more advanced countries will use these things first. It's it's totally it doesn't make sense um, for undeveloped countries to use these things until again. No, because the cost you, you need that infrastructure put in place yeah. and like yeah, and the cost and stuff. Because yeah, you could have a you know pick any country in Africa, like you, you're going to need like, cause they're not going to have a, as extensive grid as say places like, you know, metropolitan areas in the United States or even here to a certain extent yeah. that like, yeah. And even you, the incentives, yeah, you, like, um, mm-hmm. I saw something about the, uh, the plastic bottle thing. So there's some, some places in, uh, South America or, or Africa or wherever, um, where, there are plastic bottles just piling up everywhere. Like you could wade through them in the rivers or outside people's homes or whatever, because once they've used what's in them, there's zero value to them. Right. Um, But now companies are starting to realize, well, if we pay these people money for these bottles, that's going to give them purpose because I mean, they need the money to buy the things they need for just day to day living. Um, So now that they started doing this, suddenly, wow, every place is getting cleaned up because there's an incentive there for people to do something with them. Otherwise, even if if somebody, it goes blah, 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 climate change, they can't even begin to start grasping that because they're trying to just figure out how to, how to live from day to day and put food on the table and a roof over their heads. They can't get to that next step, right? But giving them that incentive of, all right, here's the instant right now, you can have money or food or clothing or any of the things that mean something to them they will totally jump on board. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Kevin, do you have any, <laughs> any, any thoughts? Well, I have thoughts, but uh, my thoughts are kind of uh, negative. So uh, carry on. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Get rid of those negative thoughts. Think happy thoughts. No, it's okay. I'll keep it to myself. When I don't have good stuff to say, I keep it to myself. It's okay. Carry on. <laughs> oh, I wish more people would have that mindset. <laughs> like Bambi and Thumper. You don't have anything nice. Don't say anything at all. <laughs> Where it's to live by. Uh, yeah, so... Yeah, so he goes on to say that, yeah, because technology and renewable energy systems has improved a lot over the decades that electricity can be utilized more and and use uh and uses of production in various sectors and he specifically talks about uh using electricity instead of fossil fuel burning for uh, steel production or mm-hmm. it was kind of well he talks more about what do they call it uh, recycled steel or secondary steel but just basically mm-hmm. the processing of you know melting that down and using energy to you know heat up certain uh systems to uh, manipulate the material and stuff so yeah instead of using fossil fuels use electricity based stuff and you know it's more efficient and talks about all this kind of other stuff and saying that like well it's lower in carbon intensity for uh, using electricity to power up this one system to manipulate the steel than if it was fossil fuel burn so so yeah that's one thing that he talks about he does say that there's some sectors that are uh still pretty um fossil fuel dependent and pretty slow to get into more uh electro electrified i don't know what the right term electrified (laughs) (laughs) introducing more (laughs) electric introducing electricity more into um their energy production um or energy usage uh so yeah those sectors were like uh shipping uh cargo aviation so like you know those long haul uh, cargo planes, uh, and then uh, things like chemical feedstocks. Um, and basically, yeah, he was just saying that those are the ones that are kind of just the slowest to transition to it. Now, he didn't really get into detail as that is that a 
choice on them to not want to do it because it's economically better to still stick with fossil fuels, or if it's just because the sector itself, it's tricky to switch over to electrified system versus a fossil fuel system. So we didn't really talk about that, but I have to figure it's probably a little bit of both because, yeah, it's tricky to, especially when it comes to like <laughs> shipping or like a, a cargo plane, like how do you get around yeah, not initially there might have to fuels. be some incentives. <laughs> Yeah, there might have to be some incentives initially to convince them to change over until, like I say, then the then the price and everything goes down to make it more feasible, and the and the masses will change the the percentage of things. But uh, yeah, cool. Yeah, so there's that, uh, and then yeah, he talks about um, how kind of discussions that we're that we should be having now, uh, focusing on energy production, should be less reliant on. Uh, negative emissions and more on systems that are initially clean and throughout the process. He states that while carbon capture and storage is viable and is a good you know, approach currently with our reliance on fossil fuels, uh, it is still costly compared to straight electrification and that electrification of energy demands are a better option when it comes to offset, offsetting uh, temperature increases uh, from like things like biomass loss. So Again, it's it's a lot. Of, <laughs> it was an article that was very, uh, again, it was all just coming from this one researcher guy, but not really getting into too much about the research itself. So it, it, it sounded like it was pretty, pretty much in the early stages of <laughs> doing whatever study that they're doing. <laughs> yeah, I gotta um, start somewhere, though. True, yeah. And then, yeah, the article closes out with the statement that global climate policies focused on fossil fuels need to work in conjunction with renewable energy systems to reach goals set out by the uh, Paris Agreement a few years ago, and then more recently, uh, the COP26 summit thing that I know there's there's <laughs> a lot of controversy with that, especially on the last day of that one. Uh, but yeah, some examples he talks about are yeah, carbon pricing, uh, scrapping levies on electricity, expanding grid infrastructure, redesigning electricity markets to reward storage and uh, flexible demand. So yeah, that's kind of all that in a nutshell. But yeah, I don't know. Just kind of reading over that, I thought it was kind of interesting. That's kind of stuff that we've talked about before to a certain extent, maybe not so heavy on we need to electrify everything and uh, get rid of fossil fuels. But I mean, I think that's kind of the general idea that to combat climate change, we want to limit to potentially if it if it's even possible to eliminate fossil fuel usage completely and start moving into these renewables or, you know, yeah. less, <laughs> less. Um, carbon intense uh, energy systems so yeah and make it and make um, it feasible for people to do so like whether it's uh, yeah because you can't just say whatever, get right? rid of fossil fuels and go straight to renewables because you have to get all the systems in place you have to make sure that you know your communities and places that you are going to set these place set these systems up uh you know it actually a makes sense and b can actually you know be i almost want to say like be being self-reliant or self-sustaining yeah, and, and again, well, I mean, kind of going back to these smaller communities or like third world places where, yeah, you can't just like say, okay, we're going to throw solar panels at you and wind turbines and like, yeah, that's going to solve it all. You don't need to burn anything anymore. It's like, well, sometimes that's <laughs> easier said than done. Yeah, well, you got to have the economic perspective there too, because people are naturally going to do what is the cheapest or what's the easiest or whatever. And it's not going to matter how good it is for the environment, the world or whatever, bottom line, a lot of people are like, well, if you can't make it better than what I'm already using, I'm, I'm not going to switch. So that's unfortunately what, what companies and governments and everybody have to do is 
make it the better option. Not just say, do it because it's the good thing. Do it because it's the better thing. So if it means doing some more work on on getting the costs yeah, down yeah. Or, or whatever, but get it to that point and then you will have everybody's support. And that's the thing. It's like, yeah, it has to be a collaborative effort and yeah, getting more into kind of really looking at these climate change policies or energy policies and actually collaboratively working with all these different stakeholders and these different groups to get on that right track. Cause what's yeah. Cause with the COP 20, well, not maybe COP 26, but the Paris agreement, I guess was hitting that 1.5 uh, degree goal, like to bring mm-hmm. that down. Yeah. Cause I forget what, what the trend is at now, but I think COP 26, they bumped it up to 1.8 or something like that. And a lot of, people are saying that like, well, that even that's not, (laughs) that's not feasible at our current rate and all this kind of stuff. So again, yeah, it has to be collaborative. It has to make sense, you know, economically and socially and all these other factors, but it's like, everybody has to start (laughs) getting their act together. Cause especially with these, these, you know, the COP 26 summit stuff, like it just seems like, you know, all these, (laughs) all these world leaders come together, say they're going to do these things, then, you know, especially with this one last minute, decide, oh, well, we're going to kind of skirt, <laughs> pull back a little bit and uh, say, well, you can still do this burning stuff over here, <laughs> uh, burning fossil fuels and coal over here and do that over here. And yeah, it's, it's, like, it's, well. like that, it's like that drawing the line in the sand saying, well, don't cross this line. And then when it doesn't work, OK, well, we'll draw another line now. I mean, you've got to make. Well, yeah, we'll move the line up. <laughs> yeah. Like, you've, first of all, you've got to make the initial line attainable. Um, to get to ensure success but then once you decide on something you can't just keep reneging on it or uh it it doesn't mean anything either so middle there Mm -hmm. but uh yeah very cool okay and then uh did you and then i got a very short one yeah i got one more uh and i was just talking about uh uh, living walls can reduce heat loss from buildings by over 30 percent this is out of uh, the university of climate Yeah, it kind of got me thinking because where, oh, you weren't, I forget, were you at the, that, um, where the first office was when we were working for CES? I was just um, on that, like and, and that one on 99th, so it's not the first one probably. No, okay, so yeah, it was before that. Anyway, so yeah, we were at, I'm totally blanking on the building, but it's, we're, what's the restaurant called? The Workshop Eatery, I think is uh in that building it yeah it's on 99th street and or 99th 91st street and you know south of ellersley road anyways it's one of the buildings in the city that's uh zero net carbon so everything the way that it was built and everything that's in it is supposed to be carbon neutral to uh, as much as it can be and Mm -hmm. yeah it was a really cool building to work in but also it was I mean, I wasn't paying for it because I was just employed for the company, but it apparently was pretty expensive to have an office there. So, yeah. but I can understand mm-hmm. why because they put so much uh, money and effort to make this building uh, net zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it was kind of cool. Anyways, they had a big living wall there, and yeah, kind of, kind of got me thinking about that. And yeah, I saw this article uh, talking about uh, living walls and how they can reduce uh, how much heat is lost from certain buildings. So, exactly. uh, they did a study on a 1970s era building that they have on their campus, I think, and how effectively two sections of its wall retained heat. So they had one section that was kind of the original make. Nothing was changed about it. It was just how it was built in the 1970s and hasn't really been altered. 
And then they had another section right adjacent to it that uh, they converted into this living wall. So they kind of replaced part of the wall with this, this um, kind of felt mesh uh, material mm-hmm. uh, where you could put uh, your growing medium, so your soil, and have these little pockets for uh, all the plants that you put in, into right. it. So they conducted the study for five weeks and did all these measurements. And based on the measurements and research, they figured that, surprise, surprise, heat loss for the living wall was 31.4% lower than the original constructed wall. And they also found that in terms of energy fluctuations, they were pretty nominal within the living wall section compared to the original section. Yeah, it'd be a lot uh, more consistent, I would think, right? So Yeah, so they're not getting so much, yeah you know, heat coming in and out and going all over the direction and all over the place. It was just kind of, um, it was a little more controlled, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the study goes on to say that while improvements have been made in urban building design to make heating and energy usage more efficient compared to 1970. So yeah, this is again in the UK, I'm um, mm-hmm. pretty sure. Uh, the concept of living walls could be an incentive of current buildings and newly designed ones to incorporate living walls. Just alone being, if you start incorporating these living walls, you could be saving you know, a substantial amount, like 30%. Well, you're not saving 30%, but through saving by reducing your heat loss by 31 point by 30%, you, that can no, translate. You're still into reducing your costs. Your, yeah. Yeah. You're reducing your heating costs for a building. So if you make these living walls bigger or you put them more frequently all around the place, like that can add up quite a bit. And that's yeah. something that, especially depending on what plants and stuff you put in there can be pretty uh, efficient at just, yeah, you kind of leave it, you, you know, you water it every so often or you have it all automated so you don't really have to think about it and it does all this stuff for you in the background. Also, I mean, there's other added benefits that study wasn't really talking about, but I mean, just once you have more kind of plants in your building, there's all these added benefits of, you know, kind of, <laughs> it's kind of uh, natural air cleaning. Like, mm-hmm. it helps well, to Well, and there's kind of, the possibility, like I- inside, there's possibility of food production, the air filtration, all the rest of that. And then you can also have ones on the outside of buildings, which further um accomplish a lot of those things because really the the concept is not new people have done things like sod roofs and building homes into sides of of uh, hills and that kind of stuff for a very long time for exactly that reason because it insulates against the cold also in the summer uh it keeps things from overheating too um and then now they've just transferred it over to newer more modern mediums and being able to do the indoor walls the outdoor wall like all all the different things but um it's it's not a new concept so to speak so it's really cool that it's getting a a resurgence i guess yeah so anyways that was kind of just a quick thing that i scrolled by and thought yeah that's kind of interesting yeah yeah very cool i yeah i like i like the the green walls and uh the green roofs and all that kind of stuff i want to i still want to do our secan here with a a green roof it's just again the uh logistics of uh designing the um engineered roof because uh you can't just dump soil and everything right on the roof as it is because everything's oh it's all it's all metal whatever but there's no structural uh strengthening in it you need to you need to put um uh whatever you call it struts or whatever across and and mm-hmm. build things yeah, up gotta, to strengthen it first otherwise you cave, <laughs> cave the whole thing in and no oh, there goes all the soil into your stuff below but so, well, just yeah, even so, like the green roof that we have at um, at uh, the college that Kevin and I went to, Lakeland College that Kevin and I went to, like, yeah, we were there not too long ago, and 
kind of talking about the green roof there and how, yeah, like it, <laughs> it was hard to get established. And I mean, it's still kind of there, but not, it's not as diverse as I think they wanted it to be. <laughs> Dead. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's still, there's still grass and other things up there that are <laughs> okay, but, uh, well, just, just might need a little more, uh, research and engineering into it to, to get the right combination, right? But at least they're, yeah, I, I think with, with, with that one in particular, I think it was more just, there wasn't enough, uh, attention being put on it. It was kind of just how oh, we built it. And yeah, as the years Threw went it up on, there uh, and there you go. <laughs> yeah. I think the other reason why it's like that is because, um, uh, usually you put the green roof on a building that has, um, heat underneath that people actually walk underneath. Right. But that one, it's just like a, a roof, like a gazebo or something like that with nothing yeah. underneath. So there's not enough heat. I guess it would yeah. depend on a bunch of variables, like how deep the soil substrate is and a whole bunch of stuff. But yeah, it could be all kinds of things. But uh, but still interesting to to know that they tried it and maybe they'll get back to it and tweak it some more. Hi, welcome to the Plant Adventure Guide. Okay, okay let's go. All right, let's talk about fescue. I kind of thought, like, for some reason, I thought we already did talk about it, but then I was looking over old episodes and it's like no i don't think we did so yeah we talked about, talk about the other us <laughs> yeah we yeah we talked about our company but we didn't actually talk about the where that name comes from um so yeah i figure let's talk about fescue so a little bit of history of the fescue or the Festuca genus and its plant family so the plant family what plant family is fescue in kevin what is it Festuca? I like, like that, that's the genus. That's the genus. Uh, fesca- oh, po poa poacea. Yeah. So the grass, the grass family. Yeah, yeah. poaceae. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the the poaceae. So yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the grass family. So the poaceae or grass family is one of the largest and most significant plant families in the world. Uh, they are very important in ecological, economic, and geographic factors, with the family appearing in almost every terrestrial area on the planet. So. I mean, it's pretty diverse. It's basically, yeah, any landmass there's across the world, there is some form of grass species there because uh, they're just so prolific and, yeah, it can kind of grow anywhere. Uh, the most important factor of all is probably economical as it kind of relates to us as the grass family, us as humans, as the grass family provides um, a lot of like uh, food staples. So things like grains, yeah, and within those grains, you know, corn, rice, wheat, oat, rye, barley. All that kind of stuff. So on top of that, the grass family, they also help to stabilize soil, uh, use sometimes revegetation, uh, help with, uh, or used in livestock applications, uh, beautification of residential and commercial areas. There's so many uses, and this kind of ties in with, I mean, a lot of plants, but grasses are so versatile uh, that you can apply it to all those uh, different sectors. So grasses are pretty successful in the plant kingdom due to their high tolerances of external forces. So that's, you know, you're grazing from animals or cuttings if you got them in uh, kind of urban areas, uh, fires. Um, uh, they have multiple ways of reproducing and their versatility uh, in photosynthesis. So even after having like the tips of stems being cut or grazed, grasses continue to grow at growing points, uh, which are also called their uh, air stems which are located at the base of the plant. So that's why, you know, if you're cutting grass at the, yeah, at the tips or at the top, you're not really, they're still able to regrow quickly because their actual growing point 
is at the very base of it. So unless you're really cutting down and constantly doing that, they're able to kind of grow back up pretty quick. So they can also reproduce through self-fertilization, asexual reproduction, cross-pollination between other plants, which is kind of the most common method amongst most plants. Uh, through vegetative means, they reproduce uh, by the way of rhizomes, which are I'm sure we've talked about rhizomes and stolons, but just to <laughs> refresh anybody, yeah. rhizomes are horizontal underground stems that grow out uh, vertical shoots, and then stolons are basically the opposite of that. So they have horizontal above ground roots that shoot that shoot vertical shoots. <laughs> shoot, <laughs> shoot vertical shoot shoots. Darn it all anyway, shoot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Um, so that's kind of the quick and dirty summary of uh, the grass family uh, or the Poaceae family. And then now I'll get into a little bit more detail with uh, specifically the fescue genus. Uh, so species in the fescue genus, genus are cool season grasses that tend to grow in cool to temperate areas of the world. So this includes most of Canada uh, and parts of Western and mid Midwest United States. That's kind of, yeah, your Northwest Atlantic kind of, or not Atlantic, North, <laughs> Northwest Pacific and kind of get it all the way down to kind of Colorado and stuff and that kind of area. But yeah, in terms of Canada, it's basically everywhere except um, none of it, I think. Cause I think even Yukon and Northwest territories, they got grasses there. I think it's just none of it that didn't really have a, uh, any indication of uh, <laughs> getting up that that far, but anyways, um, with their tolerances for drought and shade conditions, as well as being green mostly all year round, um, fescuras can be desirable for various applications, especially with landscape design. So, uh, f- yeah, like I mean, the fact that you can have a grass that's <laughs> green for most out of the year, yeah, mm-hmm. be able to especially do a lot of fun things for uh winter uh winter designs and whatnot yeah. i mean it really well, like depends on the species well and you say they're they're more or less like a cool season grass so considering canada's got a longer cooler season <laughs> than a lot of places that's yeah, one reason do why the family well. does <laughs> and they're all the fescues are clumpers too are they not like they don't they're not yes. necessarily spreaders there's so. there's only one that um technically has like a short rhizome but for the most part they're at least the three the three that i'll talk about um uh in alberta that they're the most dominant um yeah there's only one that's uh kind of rhizomatous but sort of but not really but yeah for the most part they're all a bunch a uh, bunch of grasses to a certain extent um so yeah uh fescue grasses yeah they tend to be dominant ground layer plants in various forested and non-forested communities in their in their growing range. So yeah, generally speaking, yeah, they're pretty they're low to the ground. They're tough, tufted bunch grasses. And yeah, they're not like super far spreading type grasses. And they don't mm-hmm. grow super tall. I think the tallest one that we have is uh not plains rough. Northern rough fescue. I think it's one of the taller ones, but even then that's not super tall. Uh, but yeah, yeah not grassland, compared to some of those other ones. Oh yeah, like I mean, if you think about um, like Calamagrostis, like reed grass, like yeah, those things get taller than me. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you could definitely hide in that and get lost for <laughs> for a bit. Um, so yeah, grassland sites, uh, fescue, 
grasses, they tend to be labeled as light cereal or climax species, meaning they are a better adapted to the site and can grow with limited resources. And they also help with kind of being good um, series indicators within the like a grassland site or grassland ecosystem. Uh, so they have all these kind of, uh, yeah, anyways, like I said, they're, they're climax species um, in these grassland areas. So what else? So yeah, general characteristics of fescue species include that they're, again, yeah, mostly large bunch forming grasses. Uh, their roots are mat forming, except for, yeah, I think it's Foothills rough fescue is the one that uh, has like short rhizomes. But it's either that or plains. I forget which one. I think it's uh, plains rough fescue that has oh, short rhizomes. Okay. That's what Kevin's here for. Checking out with the fescue facts. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, the roots are for the most part mat forming. They tend to have rough blades. Uh, Hence the rough. I think almost all of them have rough in their name, right? Like, yeah, at least yeah, at least which, the ones that we have here in the province. Like, well, I mean, like both. Yeah, like, sheep well, fescue think, doesn't have rough in it. But is, is sheep uh, fescue even native to Alberta, or is it more down in Montana? It, I, I think it's native, right? Sheep fescue. Uh, I forget. I always thought it was farther south, but I don't know for sure. Um. But yeah, it is It is interesting that almost all of them have rough in the name, which is why the scientific name comes in handy, because uh, then it differentiates them. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to find. Uh, let's see what else. Um, yeah, and then they got uh, purple-colored sheaths, which is a pretty sheaths. good indicator. Yes. <laughs> sheaths. Saying what? What? Weird? Um, yeah, so that's a pretty good indicator if you're trying to <laughs> ID a grass, because I know as soon as some people just look at a grass, it's like, well, it looks the same as any other one. It's green. It's got, you know, blades, and that's kind of it. And it's like, well, if, you, if you're able to look at kind of the lower part of, the, of a fescue grass, chances are you're going to get some sort of purple-ish color uh, mm -hmm. of the sheaths closer to the bottom of it. So that's always a good indicator that chances are it's probably going to be a fescue of some kind. Uh, and their inflorescence or like their flowering parts are generally large compared to other grass species because they kind of have this big kind of branching out, again, similar to reed grass that yeah, the inflorescence is kind of spread out. Yeah, and panicles, even, which are kind of definitely this, you know, little bigger, stems of the flowers are. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, and definitely a bigger seed head compared to the size of the plant. Oh, yeah, because sure. you have like the, the stem and the blades <laughs> and yeah, all the under <laughs> the below parts are so yeah small compared to the inflorescence itself that it's just, yeah, kind of spreading and trying to get out there. But yeah, uh, let's see. Yeah, in Alberta, we have three main rough fescues, and it's the only place in North America where all three uh, occur in a certain area because like there's plains, foothills, and northern rough fescue um, spread out in different parts all over North America. But uh, Alberta is one of the only places that has all three in kind of that region. Um, so yeah, rough fescue, uh, its growing preferences are typical uh, black fertile soils or black chernozemic uh, soils. But the problem with that is that with Alberta, a lot of that nice prime <laughs> prime uh, black fertile soil that we have has we been built on it yeah <laughs> yeah been built and <laughs> used for um mostly agricultural uh applications because it's so good and fertile <laughs> so it's good for growing other things that we'll use for food and whatnot but uh yeah it was also good for fescue uh but so therefore a lot of the range has been impacted because 
uh, for what they require and what they like, and then what uh, we've done for uh, agricultural stuff. But yeah, so the biggest threat to the species include agriculture, uh, as previously stated, uh, fragmentation. Uh, so that's like all these roads and stuff and infrastructure being built. Uh, and the introduction of non-native and invasive species that compete it. So, you know, with the fragmentation, you have a lot more foot traffic and people driving around. Therefore, you have more chances to carry weed species and whatnot and invasive species. And yeah, that gets introduced to a small little fescue <laughs> area. And then yeah, if these weeds are pretty aggressive, they can outcompete fescue and then yeah, kind of <laughs> kick them out of the spot. Uh, because, yeah, while it is known that, um, or, yeah, so yeah, while it is known that some First Nations in the southern regions of Western Canada uh, did eat the fescue, did eat the seeds of fescue, uh, specifically ro Rocky Mountain fescue, uh, most species within Festuca uh, have uh, these alkaloids in them that have yet to be identified and could cause harm. So it's kind of like, yeah, First Nations <laughs> way back when were known to eat a certain kind of fescue, the seeds of it, but... Uh, kind of the ones that we have now. So our plains, foothills, northern, a lot of places advise, yeah, don't eat it because we still haven't figured out uh, what alkaloids are still in there. Because things like nightshade, for example, uh, has some <laughs> has alkaloids in it that are poisonous to us. And yeah. we talked about all the poisonous plant stuff in our Halloween episode. So um, yeah. yeah, some sometimes, fescue. Sometimes hmm? less is more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But and it also depends on a lot of factors. Like if if it's uh, toxic soil, it's drawing things up from versus uh, good healthy soil, then it wouldn't be a problem. Like or if it's got some uh, fungus or or something on the plant and it's not actually the plant itself. Like yeah, there's a lot of factors to consider. But again, just be careful and know what you're really getting into before you stuff it in your mouth. <laughs> uh, let's see. So yeah, some issues with fescue grasses as it pertains to urban landscaping, because that's kind of what we're all all about uh, with our <laughs> with our businesses, is that they're mostly tuft or bunch forming, so they are not uh, the greatest choice for creating native grass lawns specifically. Um, over time, bunch forming fescues like northern rough fescue would disappear and not grow back due to excessive cutting, because it just even though that it does have its meristems or the growing points at the base, it still is. Um, it does take a toll if you're constantly um, kind of back or grazing it back multiple times because it doesn't have that rhizomatous um, uh, root system. So that even if you cut the top, that it would still be able to shoot out a bunch of, uh, shoot the shoots. Yeah, it handles it grazing. Were. All right. Mm -hmm. so. so that is why sometimes you might see a creeping red fescue, which isn't native to here. Uh, mm -hmm. more prominent in seed mixes as they are rhizominous and can flourish with multiple cuttings. So, right. yeah, you might see... Red a, fescue, you, yeah, that's actually one of the ones um, that they use in golf course mixes and uh, sometimes in hay or whatever as well because I guess with that more spreading habit, like you say, it can handle the cutting even more so it can get heavier use out of it. But, uh, but it's one of the ones that's not native. And there's other native ones that'll fit the bill still. Mm -hmm. And then also, even if you were to introduce kind of the, you know, for example, let's say northern rough fescue, like you could put it into a lawn system. It's just that you'd really have to plan out how you'd cut your lawn. And I don't think a lot of people are very uh, keen on the idea of 
<laughs> well, and that's if you have it as a pure pure stand for a lawn, right? Like if you if you have it in a mix, yeah, it would work great because mm-hmm. it's it's going to uh, stay green for a good portion of the season, being that cool crop. It's going to be one of the first ones that comes out in the spring, and then some of if you have mix it with some of the warmer season natives, then you've got that continual all season long kind of green spread, right? So, yeah, but. Uh, yeah, but yeah, and, if you if you just purely do it, yeah, I don't think it'll last very long for you. But yeah, if you put it in another native seed mix amongst all the other ones, that it can do pretty decently. Yeah, but but because a lot of the fescues are are the clumpers, and also they have that nice bluey purpley, like they're nice colors. Uh, they do work really well in um, the uh, the landscaping, like for for something visually appealing, right? Oh yeah, like because so. I think the go to is. At least that we found uh, doing stuff this year was um, Calamagrostis uh, hybrids are kind of the favorable one for ornamental grass design, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and even and, there, like a lot of people use that um, Carl Forster's, the feather reed grass or whatever, which is a relative, yeah. but it's not native. And you could totally just mm-hmm. substitute one of our natives for that and have that nice, taller, feathery effect too. And then for mm-hmm. the shorter stuff, a lot of people use the the blue um it's called blue what is this called kentucky blue clumping blue. fescue well there's <laughs> kentucky T- kentucky blue they use that for um sometimes horse pasture or for turf because it's that again that short greeny blue but i think um the clumping the blue fescue for uh the landscaping as well but again lots of them have that have a nice blue greener purpley kind of color so you could substitute a native one for that as well because like we were saying, most of everything that exists, there is a native form that looks similar, acts similar, and will probably do better in uh, these kind of local situations. So, mm-hmm. and then yeah, just and then just one other issue that sometimes comes up with uh, fescue uh, grasses is that they can be pretty susceptible to diseases and infections, such as uh, ergot, which is a fungus uh, that is poisonous to them. So. Um, that's one other issue when it comes to kind of designing stuff with fescue is fescue grasses is that, uh, trying to <laughs> plan for diseases and infections that could <laughs> come about and trying to kind of companion plant it with other things that might be better at, uh, kind of blocking that or resisting that so that the fescue doesn't get <laughs> all the infections and diseases coming on. And- that being said though, I mean, just cause they're more prone to them. Um, doesn't mean that they're going to get them on a regular basis either. It just no, means no. that if it was going to get something, that's probably what it would get. But uh, a lot of times the natives are, they're more hardy and uh, hold up better to any of the native diseases and pests anyway. But if, of course, if they're imported, um, it goes both ways. Imported um, fauna or pests um, can decimate native crops because they're not used to them. And foreign crops can also be decimated by native uh, fauna for the same reason, right? Like, so just basically, if you put like with like, you're probably going to have better chance of success versus something foreign. It it hasn't dealt with it before. It hasn't built up its defenses and may not know how to handle it, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, very cool. The fescues. What's, do you have a favorite fescue, favorite native fescue? Um. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like the Northern Rough Fescue, and then sure enough, like, like <laughs> I forgot to say this at the beginning, but it's the Provincial Grass of Alberta is the Northern Rough Fescue. 
Well, there you go. Um, I kind of like, um, uh, I can't remember what its scientific name is, but the alpine fescue because it's so tiny and cute compared to a lot of other grasses. It's like, it'd be a good one for container gardening, I guess. So. Yeah, because, that, yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a very tiny one. <laughs> I've actually got some of that, so I like it. Uh, oh, God. Festuca brachiophylla. I'm never good at the pronunciations. But yeah, no, that's probably like, how I would have said it. <laughs> anyway, it's a it's a cute little um, clumper. The seed heads get really nice and purple when they're ripe, and so just mm-hmm. I think it just looks nice in a, a little container garden type of thing. So, but anyway, yeah. So fescues, fescues are cool. Actually, grasses in general are cool. People underrate them, but we do need to to preserve our grasslands just as much as our our woods, our forests, that kind of thing, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, can't have can't have trees on every possible square inch of the earth, and in places where we can't or shouldn't um, consider putting in forbs and grasses, right? Mm-hmm. So, cool. So that is fescue. 